If you will, turn uh, to the Gospel of Matthew and to the 27th chapter. We'll read in just a moment, verses 38 through 46. Matthew 27, 38 to 46. We considered uh, this passage on an icy Sunday morning back in January, um, but I thought that it would be worth our consideration again this morning. Um, So let me pray for us, and then we'll read at verse 38. Father, thank you that we could come into your house today. Uh, Thank you that we could hear your word, and we pray that you would help us to hear your word now, that I would speak uh, not merely my words, but your words, and not in word only, as Paul said, but with the Holy Spirit, and with power and with much conviction. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 27, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an astounding question, is it not, there in verse 46? It's an unnerving question if we... Take it seriously. Jesus, the Son of God, says to his Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why you, of all people, forsaking me, of all people that could be forsaken? Just imagine for a moment that this was the very first time you had read the Gospel of Matthew. It may actually be the first time that some of you are reading the Gospel of Matthew. And just imagine yourself working your way through the first 27 chapters of the book, reading about this Jesus, a man who knew no sin, a man who was the personification of love for his fellow man, a man who taught like no one else ever taught, a man who was attested by God with miracles, a man who walked closer to God than anyone else ever walked, a man who was actually God's own Son, And now, after reading all of that, as you near the end of the book, you hear this man, this man, crying out to this God, Why have you forsaken me? Surely a good God, you would say to yourself, would not forsake his own son, would he? And surely a good man like Jesus wouldn't accuse a good God of such a thing, right? And yet, here we have Jesus asking the question, Why have you a good, gracious God, forsaken me, your sinless, obedient son. We can understand why other people, sinful people, might have forsaken Jesus, but how could God forsake him? And we can understand why God might forsake certain people who are unrepentant in their sin, but how could he forsake Jesus, of all people, 
When we think who is asking the question here and to whom it is asked, this is surely one of the most astonishing questions in the Bible. And I hope that it's a little bit astonishing to you this morning, even if you've read it a dozen times before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I just want to consider this question this morning under three headings. First of all, I want you to think about the origin of Jesus' question, the origin of this question. Now, some of you perhaps are familiar with the book of Psalms, and you know that it is a book, really the Bible's hymn book. It's a book full of songs to the Lord. And if you've any, ever read any of those songs or sung any of those songs, you will realize perhaps that before Jesus ever said these words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David, the psalmist, wrote them in one of his hymns. Particularly, these are the first nine English words of Psalm 22. As I said, the Psalms are meant to be sung. They are the Bible's hymn book, and they so often speak uh, the things, exactly the things that God's people would like to say. That's why they function so well as a hymn book. Sometimes if you read the Psalms, and I'd encourage you to do that, you will find yourself saying, David, the psalmist, is putting words right into my mouth. David is saying exactly what I like to say to the Lord. David is expressing exactly what I feel sometimes. So many of David's experiences mirror our own such that his words can often become our own. We can take them onto our own lips and sing them ourselves to the Lord. And that's what the book is there for. For instance, that's why we love Psalm 23. That's why so many people know Psalm 23, because it says just what we would like to say. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and so on. The Psalms have a way so often of putting just the right words into our mouths. And Jesus, having become flesh and dwelt among us, could say the same thing, couldn't he? The Psalms so often for Jesus said exactly what he wanted to say. That was true for him just as it is true for us. He often felt just what David felt and he could sing just what David sang. And even more than that, Jesus could often say what David said because under the Holy Spirit's guidance, David wrote his Psalms for Jesus even more than he wrote them for us. The Psalms are written to be sung not just in David's voice, but in your voice and in mine. But even more than that, the Psalms, though they were written with the pen of David, are written primarily for the voice of Jesus. He's the chief worship leader in the church. He is the one about whom the Psalms speak most vividly. The Psalms are written ahead of time, were written ahead of time, to record what the Messiah would think and feel and say and do and sing. They are sometimes therefore called messianic psalms. And that's the case with Psalm 22. Written by David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But not intended for us to read it primarily in David's voice, but in the voice of Jesus. And if you will, just keep your finger in Matthew 27 for a moment and turn over to Psalm 22. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, it's on page 562 in the pew Bible. And I would like to show you how some of what this psalm says could be spoken of David himself who wrote it. But much of what David says here goes well beyond David's own experience and can only be applied to Jesus. And I want just to walk you through the psalm briefly, reminding you that this psalm written with the pen of David is written for the voice of Jesus. 
Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That's exactly the experience of Jesus, isn't it? First in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out, take this cup from me. But there was no answer and no rest. And then from the cross, he cried out David's very words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then look at verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now, David could say that about himself at times in his life, right? He was snarled at and sneered at. But can you not hear in verses 6 through 8 the echoes of what we just read in Matthew 27? In fact, the people who were criticizing Jesus and yelling at Jesus while he was on the cross said the very words that are spoken there in verse 8. This is a psalm about Jesus. Then even more clearly we see it in verse 14 where Jesus or where David writes, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Picturing what happens to a man as he hangs on the cross. His bones are pulled out of socket. He begins to suffocate in his own bodily fluid so that his heart feels like it is melting away like wax. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. That's why Jesus said, I thirst from the cross because his body was dehydrating as he hung there. Verse 16, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That never happened to David, did it? This psalm was written about Jesus. In fact, when David wrote these words, crucifixion had not even yet been invented. This, this is a psalm about Jesus. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's exactly what happened among the Roman soldiers as Jesus hung there. And then verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Does that sound strange at the end of what we've just read in Psalm 22? Here's a man whose heart is melting like wax. Here's a man whose hands and feet are pierced. Here's a man who is being crucified, and yet he can say, I will praise you in the midst of the assembly. I will, future tense. How does a person who's being crucified in the future praise God in the midst of the assembly? Not just in heaven, but in the midst of the assembly. Only if he rises from the dead, right? So here is a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. And again, I submit to you that David not only did not have his hands and feet pierced, not only did David's heart never melt like wax, but surely David never rose from the dead. So this psalm written in the pen of David is to be read in the voice of Jesus. This is a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. And, of course, Jesus knew that. We see in retrospect that Jesus knew that. He knew that Psalm 22 was written for him. He knew that he would undergo all of these sufferings. And so as the Psalm 22 sequence of events begins to unfold on the cross here in Matthew 27, Jesus quotes the first line of the psalm. Why does he quote the psalm? 
Why does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, as we'll come back to in a moment, he said that because that's really what he felt. That's really what he was thinking in that moment. Those words came from his heart, not simply from Psalm 22. And so, in one sense, Jesus quotes the psalm the same way that we do, because he is saying to himself, this psalm says exactly what I want to say at this moment in my life. But the reason I take you back to the psalm and show you what it's all about is to point out to you that Jesus probably also quotes Psalm 22 to draw the attention of the crowds gathered around the cross that day to the entirety of this psalm. In those days, there were no chapter or number verses or no, no chapter or verse numbers in the Bible. Um, so if I were going to tell you to turn to Psalm 23, I wouldn't have the number 23 to give you. It wasn't there. And so if I were to say, let's turn to Psalm 23, what I would actually say in Jesus' time is, let's all turn to the Lord is my shepherd. Or if I were going to ask you to turn to the book of Genesis, I would say, now we're going to turn in the Bible to in the beginning. Our professor, Dr. Kilpatrick, in Old Testament when I was in seminary, used to drill this into our heads that there were no chapter or verse numbers in the Bible. And so when you find someone quoting the very first line of a book or a chapter or a psalm, what they are doing, in essence, is saying, turn to, in this case, Psalm 22. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, yes, asking God a question that we'll come back to, but he's also saying to the crowds, in effect, gathered around the cross, I want all of you in your mind's eye to turn to Psalm 22. I want you in your mind to remember that passage that so many of you have perhaps memorized because you're going to see it being fulfilled before your very eyes as I hang here on this cross. And perhaps by drawing their attention to that psalm, Jesus was answering any of the questions that the skeptics may have had. He was ensuring the crowds, I really am the Messiah. I really am the anointed of God. If you'll just turn to Psalm 22, you will see David prophesying exactly what is happening before your eyes. And I just want to say to you this morning, all of you who are gathered, if you have questions about whether Jesus really is who uh, Christians say that he is, if he really is who the Bible claims that he is, if the Bible is really a divine book, if you have those questions, consider Psalm 22 and consider Matthew 27 laid side by side with it. I think that's what Jesus wants you to do when he quotes the first line of that psalm from the cross. He's, he's saying to you, consider Psalm 22, written a thousand years before the fact, and how it so remarkably describes my crucifixion. And ask yourself if there might not actually be something to this book and something to this Jesus that it describes. I'd encourage you to do that. So that's the origin of Jesus' question. He quotes Psalm 22 because he wants us to see it being played out in real time on the cross. And I think that's helpful to see. I hope it is for you. But secondly, we need to consider the validity of Jesus' question. This is where this becomes a difficult passage, the validity of Jesus' questions. Let's put ourselves again in the shoes of the person reading the book of Matthew for the very first time. Coming upon these words from the mouth of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We would find ourselves, as I said before, asking some important questions. We would find ourselves saying, does Jesus really mean what he's saying? Is this a legitimate question or is this just rhetoric? 
Did Jesus really believe himself to have been forsaken by his own father? And if he did, was he right? Would God really do this? Would God really forsake his own son? And perhaps we would be convinced, surely God would never do such a thing, and we'd find ourselves sifting through a number of possible ways to explain Jesus' very startling question. We might find ourselves saying, well, you know, Jesus is just quoting the words of David here. Jesus knew that in actuality God would never forsake him, but David used those words and Jesus uses them as well because he wants us to sit up and notice the prophecies in Psalm 22. So he doesn't really think God's forsaken him. He just quotes the psalm to draw attention to it so that we'll see the rest of it playing out in his life. That sounds plausible, doesn't it? Jesus is just quoting this psalm to draw our attention to what the rest of the psalm says. Except that As we've seen, Psalm 22 is all about Jesus. He can't quote the first line of the psalm to show us that the rest of the psalm is about him without the first line also being about him, right? So Jesus, yes, is quoting David to draw our attention to Psalm 22, which speaks of him, but verse 1 speaks of him, just like the rest of the psalm. We can't explain away Jesus' words quite so easily. He, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is a real question. Someone else might say, well, maybe Jesus shouted those unbelievable words and and they were a real question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But maybe he did that in a moment of confusion or weakness. After all, we might tell ourselves, we all say things sometimes when we're confused or when we're weak that we don't quite mean. You ever do that? When you're upset, when you're in pain, you say things that you wouldn't normally say. And so the argument goes, perhaps that's what Jesus was doing here. Except that Jesus has no has shown no signs of doing that, even while he's been on the cross. He's shown no signs of losing his composure or speaking merely out of his emotions at all. In fact, many of you know Jesus spoke seven different times on the cross. And this is the fourth of those seven. But in all seven of the times he spoke, he exhibits remarkable self-control. Read through uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will find that Jesus never speaks from the cross as though he doesn't really know what he's saying. He exhibits remarkable power over his faculties. And surely, whether on the cross or not, Jesus would never ever say something that he didn't really mean, especially if it would reflect negatively on his Father. Surely he wouldn't have voiced any thoughts about being forsaken by God unless he believed it to have been true. Someone else, though, may argue that Jesus' words then perhaps are an example of hyperbole. Maybe Jesus here is overstating the case for effect so that people will sit up and listen. He did do that from time to time, didn't he? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Does he really mean that we should all go around with one hand, literally? Or is he speaking there, stating the case so strongly so that we'll realize how serious sin is? It's the latter, isn't it? No one here is without a hand. And so the argument goes, well, maybe Jesus is is speaking that way here. He wasn't really forsaken by God, but he spoke this way. He overemphasized just so that we would understand how badly he was suffering on the cross. But again, I ask if Jesus would have spoken this way in hyperbole when doing so might have portrayed God, his father, in a distorted way. I don't think so. 
I think we have to conclude that Jesus meant what he said and that he knew what he was saying. He truly believed himself to have been forsaken by God. Jesus didn't struggle like we do with confusion or speaking out of his emotions or saying things that he didn't really mean. So surely he would have never allowed himself through hyperbole or otherwise to even have appeared to be calling his father's faithfulness into question. Unless he really believed that his father had forsaken him. Surely Jesus meant exactly what he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then we have to ask, was he right? He really meant this. He knew what he was saying, but was he right? Is this a valid question? Did God really forsake Jesus on the cross? Well, perhaps someone might argue Jesus was earnest in his question. He really believed that he'd been forsaken by God, but maybe he was mistaken. Maybe Jesus looked around at the jeering crowds and the mocking soldiers and the nails in his hands and in his feet. Maybe he looked at the darkness that covered the land that day and assumed that all of these negative signs meant that God had turned his face away. But maybe he misinterpreted the evidence. That's one way to interpret this passage. But I submit to you that Jesus never misinterprets anything, does he? Indeed, in this case, he had plenty of time to consider the evidence around him. For remember, these horrific events didn't come upon him suddenly. They'd been prophesied a thousand years in advance. And Jesus knew Psalm 22. Jesus knew that this psalm was about him. He knew that he was going to suffer these things. He had his whole life up to this point and eternity before that to consider what all of this meant. And so when Jesus looked at his hands nailed to a Roman cross, when he saw the blood trickling down his legs, when he heard the soldiers taunting him just as they had done in Psalm 22, when he saw them dividing up his garments as was prophesied, when he felt his heart melting like wax within him, he knew unmistakably what it all meant. He knew what was happening. He wasn't mistaken about these things. He knew, if he knew Psalm 22, he also knew Deuteronomy 21 which tells us that whoever is hanged is accursed of God. The way in the Old Testament to show that someone was under the curse of God was to hang them up in a tree. And here he is hanging under the curse of God. He knew that Isaiah had said that it would be the Lord himself who would be pleased to crush him. So Jesus knew exactly what was happening here. He knew that it was his father who was pouring out this judgment on him. There's no other way to interpret the words of Jesus in Matthew 27 than that they were a valid question. Jesus really was forsaken by his father. The heavenly father with whom Jesus had perfect fellowship for all eternity, who gave his son human life, the heavenly father who awoke Jesus morning by morning, Psalm 50, to train him in the scriptures, the heavenly father whose voice Jesus had always obeyed, whose approval Jesus had always sought, the one who said, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. This same heavenly father, Jesus is now telling us, forsook his only begotten son that day on the cross. The heavenly father allowed those soldiers to beat and mock and spit upon his son. He ordained that those nails be placed in his hands and his feet. He watched his son gasping for every breath and he did not come to his aid. Just as the psalm says, God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but you do not hear. Make no mistake, this is really how it happened. 
There was no hesitancy in God's mind about whether he would go through with this plan. There were no angels in heaven holding God back, keeping him from throwing in the towel and convincing him to stay the Psalm 22 course. No, we're told again in Isaiah 53 that the Lord is pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to put his son to grief. The Lord was pleased to forsake him. Somehow, for those three hours on the cross, as Jesus inwardly groaned for deliverance, the heavens were like brass against his prayers. And when he finally summoned the strength, verse 46, to cry out in a loud voice, the most difficult question that surely God has ever been asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even then, there was no answer. And he was left hanging there, utterly abandoned and alone. And the question is, why? Why have you forsaken me? And so we need to finally consider the answer to Jesus' question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quite a question. But what's the answer? Well, let me remind you that the reason this question is so difficult for us to fathom is because one of our favorite verses as Christians is spoken by the mouth of God, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Isn't that one of the great verses that we cling to? God says to his people, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. God said that on four different occasions in the Old Testament to various people. And in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews applies it to all of God's children. I will never leave you or forsake you. And there are other verses that speak likewise. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, we are persecuted by men, but not forsaken by God. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Psalm 37, 25. I love this verse. The psalmist says, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Psalm 37, 28, the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. Those promises are as certain as the dawn, are they not? As sure as the sun will rise again tomorrow morning, the Lord does not forsake his godly ones. Never. And surely if there was ever a godly one, surely if there was ever one to whom those promises would hold true, it would have been Jesus, right? The one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The one who went about doing good, Acts 10, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. If there was anyone to whom God would ever say, you are one of the godly ones, the promise applies to you. If there was anyone who could ever legitimately say, my God, you are my God. Undoubtedly, it was Jesus the Nazarene. And yet here, this very one finds himself in a position where he must turn his face heavenward and say, my God, my God, why have you done the thing that you promised you would never do to your godly ones? Why have you forsaken me? Why indeed? That's the question. Why did it please the Lord to crush him? Why didn't he come to his son's aid in the midst of his darkest hour? Why didn't he answer that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why didn't he come when all the people were taunting Jesus and bring him down from the cross? Why was the land overspread with the darkness of God's displeasure rather than the light of his presence that day? Why have you forsaken me? 
Well, the question in Psalm 22 is answered among many places in Isaiah 53. Let me read to you just a few lines from that chapter. God forsook his son because, quote, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's why God didn't answer his prayers. That's why God forsook him, because the iniquity of us all had fallen on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A shorter answer to the question in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made him Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus to become sin on our behalf. In other words, as Jesus hung there on the cross, God put all the guilt of your sins and mine literally on the head of Jesus and made him to become sin, Paul says. And then according to Isaiah, God did to this one who had become sin what God always does to sinners. He poured out the fierceness of his wrath upon him, unstintingly, in full measure, and without mercy. God crushed his son. God did not heed his cries. God abandoned him to a sinner's fate precisely because his son was in that three hours carrying the guilt of your sins and mine. And because such abandonment and judgment is precisely what our sins deserve. We are sinners, every one of us, aren't we? And the Bible says that our sins make us deserving of being forsaken to God's wrath, with no one to come to our aid when we groan for deliverance. And yet, like a shepherd loves his straying sheep, God loves us and longs to hear our cries, longs that we be safe, longs to answer our call for mercy. And so, in our place, he poured out the wrath that we deserve on his Son. And he kept pouring even amidst Jesus' groans for deliverance. And he kept pouring even when Jesus' voice pierced the sky with that horrific question, Why have you forsaken me? And he kept pouring until Jesus could say, It is finished. Why? Why did God pour out his wrath upon his son? So that he would have no more wrath left to pour out on you and on me who believe. Why did God forsake his son? So that he would never have to forsake you. And so that he would never have to forsake me if we believe. I've told you before and I tell you again, Sinclair Ferguson, the pastor in South Carolina, has said we would almost think that God loves us more than he loves his son. That's impossible, of course. But when we consider that God forsook his son so that he wouldn't have to forsake us, we would almost think that God has placed us above his son. So the answer to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is this. I've forsaken you, my son, says the Father, in order that we may say together to undeserving sinners, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. 
Do you know this Jesus who is forsaken for you? Have you turned from your sins to follow him? Is he really everything to you? Is your hope of eternity pinned entirely upon him? Is his sweet name often on your lips? And do you know the forgiving love of his father? The God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he forsook his only begotten son so that he would never have to forsake you who believe. Do you believe? Would you believe in this Jesus today? And if you would, would you not live every moment of your life to his praise?